very amusing. Your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I am so happy to be here. If you're a longtime listener to Very Amusing, welcome back! I'm so happy to have you here to have the Tro's hotline phone ringing off the hook, and as of very recently, to finally see some of your beautiful masked faces out in the parks. Now, if you happen to be new to Very Amusing, hi! Welcome! Let me tell you a bit about this silly little space. Very Amusing is all about bringing you unheard stories and unexpected details about Universal and Disney theme parks, all from a clearly very enthusiastic source. Me! I'm Carly Wiesel, a reporter, writer, host, and somewhat strange woman who, unfortunately, your household is probably heard yelling through Instagram stories each and every day. As a journalist who has been professionally writing for almost 13 years, I went to Walt Disney World for my bachelorette party in 2015 and left immediately needing to know more, embarking down this very unexpected path shortly thereafter. I'm now a full-time theme park writer and contribute to a bunch of websites and magazines, but most importantly, get to tell the stories I've really wanted to tell right here on Very Amusing. I know I left y'all for way too long between seasons, but I promise it was for a good reason. And that good reason is that it will never happen again. While I was inside 24-7, living out that last long stretch of true quarantine, I mapped out both season two and season three. So rest assured, the rest of 2021 will have plenty of deep dives, mini mysteries, and overly enthusiastic voicemails from my mother. Yes, the voicemails are back, and Audrey is already trying to worm her way back onto an episode. So you've been warned. It took a while to get this season up and running, but I'm beyond delighted that it is debuting now. All these theme parks are now open. Many of us, including myself, are fully vaccinated. And as a California resident, I am beyond excited to finally walk down Disneyland's Main Street USA and ride 4,000 escalators down to Universal Studios Hollywood's lower lot. I plan to head back to Florida this summer, a strange sentence considering I used to be there every four to six weeks, but I'm I'm excited and a little bit anxious. This season, I, I hope to bring you stories that make your next theme park visit, whether or not that's this year, even better. The truth is, Very Amusing has never existed while all these parks have been open, and I really, really wanted to wait to bring you a mix of everything this season. You can expect a deeper look into new attractions, backstories to things you already know and love, and even a blast from the past to celebrate a significant anniversary. Now, these episodes will be shorter than some of last season's two-hour-long bonanzas. I'll chalk it up to uh, a learning curve and knowing how much time we had to fill while truly inside our homes. But this season, you can expect tighter episodes that pack more of a punch. We also won't be including as much discussion of the news. I cover it weekly in my Sci-Fi Wire column, and if you want more immediate updates of what's going on, like updates about the new Disney Cruise Line ship, the Disney Wish, or Jungle Cruise's opening date this summer, baby, that's all happening over on my Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get bonus podcast mini-episodes, a weekly newsletter, and a monthly zine. So don't worry, I've still got you covered on multiple bases. As always, Very Amusing will remain kid-friendly. We beep any profanity with that Star Tours chime. 
and always keep the discussion as clean as possible. So feel free to listen in your car, in your home, or in any other place that likely has Cheerios embedded beneath the cushions. I also want to reiterate that this podcast will remain as spoiler-free as possible. It's a bit tricky sometimes considering what we're talking about. But for example, the structure and experiences at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, like Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, they'll be discussed. But what actually happens on the attraction beyond a general summary that you get to pilot the Millennium Falcon will not be discussed without fair warning. I mention that because this week we are piloting our Starfighter right into the heart of Galaxy's Edge. There are so many great things I cannot wait to share with you. So stick around because we're going behind the scenes to find out how this spire-packed space was really made. Okay, you know that feeling that everyone knows something that you don't? For me, that used to be Quince, but no more. Quince is a truly astounding retailer, essentially carrying everything a person on your mood board would wear. We're talking washable silk blouses, chic leather bags, 14 karat gold jewelry, European linen dresses, and the best part of all is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're up here with $50 Mongolian cashmere sweaters. $50! Beautiful, timeless items you can wear and actually live in. Meaning, you don't have to be scared to bring them on your theme park travels. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And if you're sensitive to retailers like I am, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. But it's not just your everyday work-life clothes. They have everything. I recently joined a new gym, big deal for me, and desperately needed new workout clothes to wear there. It's kind of like an LA gym. It's like it kind of got to look cute. So I ordered a pair of their Ultraform bike shorts and high-rise pocket leggings. And when I tell you, the quality of these leggings is truly on par with brands I paid three times as much for, which really kind of makes me love these three times more. I'm not only going to buy them again, but actually buy the other travel stuff in my cart because they have things like beautiful pastel suitcases for 129 bucks and these wildly affordable compression packing cubes that I have been waiting forever to buy compression packing cubes and they're always so pricey and here the price fits. So if you want to get ready for work, your new gym, travel, anything in your life, go to Quince. Quince.com slash amusing will get you free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Ooh, that's nice for someone who puts stuff off like I do. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash amusing to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash amusing. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Today, we're talking about the making of quite possibly the most prominent theme park expansion in recent years by way of a new book called The Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. This isn't any old Disney Parks publication, because its author is truly the end-all, be-all expert on the subject. 
Amy Ratcliffe is not only the managing editor of Nerdist.com, but has a half dozen books under her belt, like A Kid's Guide to Fandom, which encourages and teaches young Padawans to embrace their interests, and The Jedi Mind, which aims to make regular people like us as blissfully chilled out as a modern-day Yoda. I spent time with Amy on a research trip for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge way back when that took us from Lucasfilm's offices in San Francisco to Walt Disney Imagineering to a hard hat tour of the land itself before it opened, meaning she's seen this place through from start to well beyond its finish, even if, as you'll soon hear, the Star Wars experiences within these parks are nowhere near done. If you have not yet been able to visit Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the otherworldly planet that opened in 2019 at California's Disneyland Resort and Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World Resort in Florida, allow me to give you a no-spoiler primer. The planet this theme park land exists on is called Batuu. It's a far-flung expanse home to Black Spire Outpost, a kind of city center here on the outer rim of the galaxy, complete with restaurants, shops, experiences, and even a marketplace modeled after the souks and bazaars of Morocco and Istanbul. Long past its prime as a trading post, this corner of Batu has since become home to a burgeoning First Order presence. If you're not as familiar with the franchise, that basically means Kylo Ren and Stormtroopers are bound to show up. The terrain is full of these spires, bases of thousand-foot-tall, multicolored, petrified tree stumps, hand-carved and painted with inspiration pulled from Arizona's petrified forests. While in the land, you'll hear phrases like, Till the spire! and Bright suns! That's just local lingo, used to keep the Star Wars-y storyline of the land alive, as the merchants you'll encounter are not aliens, as you might expect, but humans like us. Here, you can trudge up past the Millennium Falcon, rendered in full scale for the first time ever, and take your chance at piloting it or follow the path beyond the marketplace to a somewhat haphazard hidden base for rebel troops, where the attraction, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance, is located. The last time we spoke with Walt Disney Imagineering portfolio creative executive Scott Trowbridge on this podcast, it was to discuss how audio animatronics in those rides are made, and even learn the most surprising details of how that one scene in Rise of the Resistance actually works. This time around, though, we're diving into this land as a whole, with help from Scott, who oversaw its creation. Simply put, this book wouldn't be this good without the both of them. You see... I report on Disney parks constantly, and it's rare to get anything on the record, let alone published on pages, that details the process by which these spaces are created and the ideas that are ultimately left behind as these lands come to fruition. That's why I couldn't wait even one week to sit down with Scott and Amy and discuss every revelation between its covers. Spaces that were announced but never built, experiences that we had no idea were on the table, internal project code names, it's all in here, with quotes and details and sketches from the creative minds who dreamt it all up. And I'm not one to be salacious with it. I know it's easy to make a bit of a spectacle about things that didn't actually make it into the park, but to hear these two discuss this book, this land, and that a good idea never dies, well, Let's just say I've definitely turned a corner on my excitement for whatever comes next. So surprise, surprise, we do dovetail a bit into Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, the forthcoming two-night Star Wars experience billed as a kind of cruise on land. Because how could you not? This is May 5th, after all, and with yesterday's debut of The Lightsaber, you know, the realistic one I saw and had absolutely no proof of so people didn't believe me, we do get into a bit of discussion about it. When we recorded this interview, well, that footage was not yet public, so 
just keep that in mind. I wasn't out here like trying to trying to sneakily get you proof, but I'm just very glad that it's now available and we can all see what it is. And this new style of retractable lightsaber, a very realistic version on par with what we see in the films, is now officially confirmed to be something you'll see at Galactic Star Cruiser when it opens in 2022. One more quick thing. We do mention something called Ellie in this interview. And while I won't spoil what Scott and Amy had to say about it, I do need to mention that this creature is not only mentioned in the art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, but was also the subject of a children's book Amy wrote called Ellie and Me, spelled E-E-L-E. There's actually a section in the art book where there's a photo of the Ellie book, which means that Amy basically wrote a book that includes a reference to her other book. That's what I'm talking about. Amy is the go-to person for all this stuff. But really, I'm just so happy to share this chat with you because like the book, it peels back the curtain on how these places we spend so much time in are made a reality. You'll hear what it's like to sift through piles of Star Wars sketches and get paid for it, present a theme park land to Bob Iger and George Lucas, and uh, even discuss a certain 26-foot-long something that lives on in infamy. We don't get to everything, and I'm kind of glad we don't. I want to be sure you're able to discover some of the secrets hidden within these pages and follow the design process from idea to actuality. One personal favorite anecdote, though, is a story from Imagineer Chris Beatty, who shared that while in Istanbul, the project team got a call that they had to rethink the layout of the entire land. There, in two hours' time, in an overseas hotel conference room, they sketched out the final layout of the land, took a photo, sent it in, and the rest was history. It's so nice to to see what it takes, the love, the energy, the effort to bring these spaces to life. And I'm so happy to be able to aid in that mission right here on Very Amusing. So without any further hesitation, here is Amy Radcliffe and Scott Trowbridge talking all things Galaxy's Edge. you both so much for being here. I'm so excited to discuss this book with you. But just from the top, I mean, Walt Disney Imagineering has for so long been this ultra private place. And now there's a physical book highlighting spaces and concepts that weren't really publicly acknowledged or discussed like this until now. Scott, what went into the decision to publish the art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge? And Amy, as a writer, what was it like to peel back the curtain for the rest of us? Well, I think that we've actually, at Imagineering, we've, we have actually pulled that curtain aside a little bit in the past to kind of show people the kind of work that happens at Imagineering in the past. But I don't think we've ever done a project quite like Star Wars Galaxy's Edge before that had the, the kind of depth and breadth of art and visual assets that went into the making of this deeply immersive land. As someone who just loves seeing the the work that these amazing artists do all day, every day, just having the opportunity to kind of share that with folks just felt like it felt like a no brainer. And it was exciting. And I'm thrilled that I got to work on this project and gushed frequently along the way about it. But Disney parks and star Wars are really, it's like the solid Venn diagram of my uh, things I'm passionate about. And it is this in-depth look at how a land is ideated and, how blue skies, like just the ideas get thrown out there. And it just felt special to get to 
go through that digital pile of art like a kid uh, on my 13 inch too tiny laptop screen that I absolutely used the second monitor for the first time when I wrote this book because I just the art was opening a ton of Christmas presents that were all about Star Wars, which is my favorite kind of Christmas. What was the digital archival process, both throughout the creation of the land and whatever Amy was sent after to go through? I think the word we're looking for here is messy. Um, <laughs> as well intended as you might be to start off and say, okay, like we're going to have a kind of a digital filing process that like where things there's, there's naming you know, there's kind of naming conventions and filing conventions. And then you find yourself all this, you know, with a, a sketch of a thing and you don't know what it wants to be, right? Is this a place? Is this a creature? Is this a feeling? I don't know. And so you end up with, you know, giant, giant files of, of like miscellaneous sketches and things that don't quite have a, a home yet. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of art that scan everything from beautiful finished pieces that are, you know, ready to go on, you know, I don't know, on billboards to a napkin sketch, literally a napkin sketch of a thing that is the, the germ of an idea. So all of that over the years of, of kind of development, we had some amazing people, Carter Tata predominantly, whose job was to kind of keep track of all of that for years, for, you know, for the years of development. Um, and I, you know, I just say, God, God bless anybody who was able to kind of keep up with that. And I will say for those who are kind of curious about how the sausage gets made, that is actually a full-time job for people is just to manage the flow of digital assets and to be able to understand, you know, when a piece of artwork or a piece of content, you know, is likely to be important or not. Where in the stage of the process of making this land did the idea of a book come about? It came about pretty early as we started to develop the art. And, you know, it was kind of half joking. It's like, wow, we have, you know, th th this, as we were developing ideas and developing things, and we kind of knew that some, you know, we were developing 10 ideas where we needed one, right? And we would kind of pick one direction to go, leaving like nine directions that were just as awesome, but not the ones we were going to use. We started joking pretty early on. It's like, man, we should put this together into an, an art of book. We have enough stuff here. But it was kind of, you know, early days, you're kind of like, ha, 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 let's get this thing built. And then we'll, and then we'll think about, you know, then we'll think about this, but priorities. yeah, priorities. And then, but over time we started to realize, you know, we really might have enough stuff here to make a compelling, you know, to make a compelling book. And I'm always worried about kind of under delivering. So I was kind of a little reluctant for a while, kind of going, let's make sure we have enough stuff that's cool enough that we, you know, that, that if someone were to go out there and, and buy this book, that they would feel satisfied with what we were giving them. And I, I guess I definitely feel like we've delivered on that. Oh, big time. I mean, even reading it myself, there's a lot of secrets in it. Like the book references Delos and Alcatraz, like these code names for the land and attractions. Was there any pause to publish those kind of details that would typically only be used within the working team? I think we did have conversations around that. Um, you know, it is because it is typically something that we don't necessarily want to, you know, kind of put out there. And it isn't because it, there's any real value in it being a secret. But we also try to make sure that the stuff we're kind of putting out there for folks is protective of the magic and not too like, here's how the sausage is made. But I think more and more people are understanding that there is a process behind this. This is a creative generation process. These things don't just like one day exist and descend from the heavens and, and exist. There are really talented people that are working hard to make these things happen and to kind of celebrate that process, to celebrate the how, how it happens, I think, you know, is, is something that we're 
the world is much more interested in. And so we're, you know, happy to engage in. And sometimes that means showing some things that we typically haven't done in the past or sharing some ideas or even sharing things that didn't happen for some, you know, for some reason, there's great ideas that are represented in this book that just didn't happen for a variety of reasons. And typically we'd kind of hold back on that because, uh, you know, we just only wanted people to think about the stuff that is really available to them. But I, you know, I think the world's a different place. It's more open to having this kind of information out there and not having it feel like it is in any way, you know, degrading the experience of going to the land. So, you know, happy to share that with folks. You know, oftentimes we won't actually come up with a, a name for something until later on in the process, right? Until it kind of like the DNA of the idea kind of expresses itself and then we kind of figure out what the best name is. So things like Star Wars Galaxy's Edge or even, you know, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance, the two names you just mentioned in their code name, their, their early code names. Even when we announce those names, we are still so many years into using their code names as shorthand that it is almost impossible to not. Scott, in the foreword of this book, which you wrote, uh, you mentioned that you had a lunch with George Lucas and Bob Iger where you proposed expanding the galaxy with new locations, characters, and stories. What was that experience like as this kind of, I guess, middleman between the arsenal of talent at WDI and someone who can ultimately say yes or no to those kind of ideas? Anytime that either George or Bob Iger, you know, want to say things, you know, have opinions about things, it's definitely something that we, we pay attention to and listen to. But I would also say that both of those gentlemen from day one were nothing but supportive uh, of kind of, 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 of supporting this vision. Um, and in fact, you know, really just, you know, letting us kind of be ambitious with it. I think the the only weird thing is when you're when you're talking to George Lucas and kind of saying, "Look, we think we want to instead of kind of doing a greatest hits thing, we kind of want to expand this galaxy and go do new places and go invent new things." You know, and you're kind of thinking, "Well, is he gonna? I hope he's not mad that we're kind of not just redoing the greatest hits." But of course, George's personal relationship with Imagineering and Lucasfilm's relationship with Imagineering is decades long. And I think there's, you know, both of those companies have an incredible, you know, this, this legacy of innovations in storytelling, being bold with what kind of stories get told, inventing new techniques and technologies uh, and tools, things that begin with the T, to create and to deliver those experiences. So I think there's just a lot of common DNA between those two organizations. And so there's a lot of shared trust. I hope that's the case anyway. Whenever I interview anyone who works on a new Disney attraction, they always tend to emphasize that you don't want to create a book report or basically a space that replicates the experiences of a movie directly, which was echoed throughout this book. For people who aren't as familiar with theme park design, are you able to pinpoint why exactly there shouldn't be a Mos Eisley Cantina or other numerous spaces that they're used to seeing within these films across Galaxy's Edge? I can speak to that a little and Scott, please jump in. But I, my takeaway as a fan and as someone who researched this book is it's really, we've seen those stories. You know that place on screen. You've been there. You've seen Luke's experience in the most likely cantina. You've seen incredible violence there. Well, not, not incredible violence for the most likely cantina, but to us. And you'd walk into a replica of that with all of that in your head and in your pocket and you would have expectations where here you can walk into a land that is the DNA of Star Wars. It has all the same design notes and shapes, everything that you recognize that makes it Star Wars. 
but it's all new. And then you can create your own story. You're at the center and you're not living Luke's adventure or Leia's. You're doing your own thing and creating your own path and discovering for yourself, which is really exciting. How do you reach that kind of balance in designing a space like this? And how does one decide what elements to keep Star Wars as people know and what elements to introduce anew? I think all Star Wars design has a basis in real world things. And it always has, right? If you go back to the original, you know, to the original designs, uh, you know, of the, of the first movie, right? I mean, those settings were real world places with a little Star Wars tacked onto them, whether it was the, you know, the Redwood Forest or the, the deserts, you know, out in the hinterlands or the, a snowy, you know, a snowy climate someplace. I think that is part design choice. That's part production reality of making those movies at that time but that kind of design approach of it feels grounded it feels real mostly but with 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 kind of a star wars twist on it i think that i think that persists to this day and was certainly a big part of our design um theology if you will as we were bringing you know as we continued to bring star wars to life in the real world in all the ways we're doing it i won't ever tire speaking with doug chang who's a vice president and executive creative director at Lucasfilm. He's always just full of insights and his work, incredible work on Star Wars goes back to the prequel era. And he often goes back talking about Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston and and those artists who helped define kind of what we know as Star Wars in the original trilogy and really just has a lot of intelligent, uh, just captivating things to say about how it does start in the real world. And that's how you make it to Scott's point. That's how you make it grounded. That's how you make it believable. And that's your starting point. And then you just kind of add on layers of fantastical and suddenly you're like in that zone. And Doug likes to talk about how you just kind of, you know, like, I think it's like a three second read. Is that right? That I've heard from Doug or maybe Ian Morrow. Like you look at something and you're like, yep, Star Wars. And if it doesn't meet that bar, like go back to the drawing board and try again. I find it so interesting to kind of see these parallels at work where the WDI team in Making Galaxy's Edge created this space that really builds upon other concepts that were established before them, which is kind of the exact base idea of a place like Batu. Were the designers at all aware of that parallel between what they were doing themselves and kind of what the core of the landscape of the land is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for Galaxy's Edge, at least, the idea of kind of upcycling, recycling, reuse is built into everything. And much of it is actually upcycled from parts and pieces of real things, just as original Star Wars design was. You can find parts and pieces from aircraft and automobiles and all kinds of things mixed in there that, that give it that sense of, um, especially on the, you know, out, out there on the outer rim in these kind of frontier towns, you know, resources are scarce. And so the idea of upcycling and recycling uh, and where is inherent in all of that design. And to contrast that, if you look at something like some of the art that we're um, beginning to show for, for the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience, that feels luxurious and glamorous and purpose-built and um, a completely different kind of feel. Still feels very, very Star Wars, but it isn't that kind of frontier kind of town. It's more that kind of glamorous, high-end style of Star Wars. 
Yeah, and I'm really into that because we don't get to see a lot of that in Star Wars and in the films. It's a lot of the the grungy universe, no matter the location. The prequels, you kind of got some of that Art Nouveau, like high class vibes here and there, especially like in the Senate chambers. But I think something that's really special about Star Cruiser is exploring a whole new kind of way to look at Star Wars, kind of take that Canto Bite aesthetic from Last Jedi, but make it a, a really cool experience and something that guests can walk into and like just like hearing like Anne Johnson and Doug Chain like nerd out about okay we have to think about like what does carpet in Star Wars look like new carpet or like synthetic materials because it's not like Scott said everything's normally just beat up and reused so it was a new chance to just think about things in a way they they haven't had to before. One thing I was shocked by in the book was this old concept sketch of Luke in Jabba the Hutt's throne room from Ralph McQuarrie who you mentioned before. Uh, it It's mentioned in the book that it really inspired the interiors of Ogus Cantina, and I absolutely see that comparison. Are things like that often helpful to designers, or can it be hurtful to have so many images that just kind of permeate your design process because they already exist, or is it a mix of both? Oh, no, no. It's all grist for the mill, right? It is all, you know, that that amazing body of work that goes all the way back to Ralph McQuarrie, Joe Johnson, all the work that Doug Chang has done and, and, he, and, that, and that team. I mean, all that work goes into the body that has created Star Wars design. But then we do go out and we will go to places. Like if we're, if we're designing a place that wants to feel like a crossroads and some, you know, kind of exotic crossroads out in the, in the you know, that, that, that has existed for hundreds of, or thousands of years, we will go to those places, right? And, and, and just sit and, and absorb and understand what it takes to be, what makes this place feel special. Amy, I do want to ask you, you are now what I would consider just a walking encyclopedia for all of this, having written this book. Are there any details that you picked up on in your many, many interviews that you're most excited to see when you go back to the land? Like, is there anything, you know, not not even a ride, not even some food, like you just want to see one specific detail that you found out through the course of your reporting? It's the little things. And that's actually what I love most about Galaxy's Edge. I as I have a great time on the attractions, but my favorite thing to do is, uh, especially if it's warm, is to hang out in the marketplace. And there's a, in Disneyland a spot by the restrooms that's a great corner that's shaded at the right time of day. And I can stand <laughs> very specific. I don't like to be hot. So I can stand there and see like everyone walking around the obelisk out towards the resistance area. People at the creature shop like squeezing various toys and seeing what happens. And it's just so atmospheric. And I love that. And something I talked a lot about with, with Chris Beatty in particular was the attention paid to every piece of that marketplace, to the tangling of cables, to the placement of lighting, the, the overhanging uh, fabrics that are overhead, how that's arranged, and how all the the rock work, the buildings, how they're aged because they they did those research trips. They know how that can look in cities that have been around for thousands of years and they want that vibe on Batu because you want to look at Black Spire and walk around and imagine the history of it. Um, all that to say is, is something that they specifically, you know, they think about like when animals, like 
on the walls, like adding up textures, like if an animal walks by and maybe their fur is a little oily and they rub against the wall, like what kind of mark would that leave? What's the weathering going? What's the environment? What are the three sons of Black of Batu going to do uh, when they beat down on this surface? It's all those little things that I just have a, an even greater appreciation for and that I want to soak in when I go back, which I can't wait to do. I would love to hear more about Ellie, both the full-size creature that was imagined for the land and also the book that Amy wrote. It sounds fantastic. And uh, I would love to know kind of the tech behind what was proposed for the land and also how or if there are any plans to carry the character through beyond this. During the development in the Blue Sky process, we're ideating a million different things that we think would be would be cool and would be, you know, help bring it to life and make it a dynamic land. And one of those was this creature named Ellie, who was a 26 foot long, somewhere between a giant mix between a hamster and a gerbil with tusks. Um, a, you know, a great creature, but but the most friendly, lovable, huggable, giant furball you've ever seen. And so we actually started to ideate um, ways to bring that creature to life in the land and kind of have it lumber through the land. Um, and we went so far as to actually develop and prototype the the technology that would actually allow that to happen. The kind of the um, you know the 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 giant scale robotics that we would have do that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, as some of these great ideas, you know, they, they must get prioritized. And we realized, okay, if we really are driving this. If this massive creature is coming through the land, it, you know, we know the land's already going to be crowded. What is that going to do to the, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't a thing we do on opening day, which is to say we're never done developing these things. So who knows what's going to show up in the future. But I will say, I just fell in love with that character and with Sal Ju, who's kind of her, you know, her humanoid uh, friend. And I just, you know, in, in the rest of the team always made fun of me because I always felt like I carried a locket around my neck with a picture of Ellie in it. You know, and I'm like, she's coming back. She's going to, you know, we're, we're going to tell her story. Um, and finally, in a conversation with Amy, we kind of thought, you know what, let's do tell this story. Let's tell the story of Ellie and Sal Ju. And, and Amy really kind of helped bring that to life. Yeah, equally, just as soon as Scott and Margaret really told me about Ellie and I, you know, I have a really soft spot for for animals in real life, but creatures in Star Wars, one of my favorite areas to dig into because they're cute. They're, uh, you know, they're, they run the spectrum. And when I like learned about Ellie and learned about her and Salju's relationship and how bonded they were, and I just fell in love too. And <laughs> you can't really hug a book, but when I spot that book in my pile, I'm just like, oh, Ellie, I love you. And I got to name a creature. I got to name ellie's creature as uh she's a fairy and i like as someone who loves star wars creatures the fact that i got to come up with a name i was like are you really gonna let me do this and i absolutely named oga's tuka cat as well and used my own cat's names to come up with the name so all around pretty exciting for me (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i did not know this that's pretty incredible that you like your own pet names are now canon Yep, Kaiska is named after Kyrie and Ahsoka. Amy! I was really pleased. I was like, maybe I'm just going to put this in here and we'll see if they let me keep it. And she didn't have, the Tuka Cat didn't have a name yet, so I got, I got lucky. Wow. See, Scott, for, for people like us, this is very exciting. We don't get to build whole lands. Uh, listen, it's always exciting. Make, making, making the Star Wars is always fun and exciting. 
Amy, as, as someone who has also reported on the parks on our end and then now was the person to find out all this information that you're now relaying to us, what was it like to do all of these interviews and find out details that you had never heard before and were hearing for the first time? Oh, I absolutely outwardly and inwardly was just, you know, uh, nerding out with every interview. And, you know, to Scott's point, everyone is so passionate. And there were a lot of artists and designers I, I hadn't interviewed before or come across before with my reporting work. So we'd always kind of get a little off tangent, just like breaking the ice, talking about our mutual love for Star Wars. And just like everyone was thrilled that they got to work in this world and tell stories in this world. So I found in doing these interviews, and, and goodness, I talked to, I should have this number on hand, but I feel like at least 20 to 25 people, because I want all the information possible, even if I can't condense it in a way that makes sense, or even if I can't directly quote it, I want the backgrounds, and I just prefer to have all the input. And it was just chatting and not trying to like, you know, I never had to like, I'm not, I wasn't here to like, let me have your secrets, like to dig things out. It was just conversation. And in those conversations, just appreciating Doc Ondar or, or some aspect of the land that it's just like casual tidbits would come up. And the hardest part really was like stopping. Like I could have just kept doing that. I could have talked to Scott for three more hours, Chris Beatty for three more hours, like so many people, we could have just kept going uh, because selfishly, like, I'm like, this is the, this is so fun. I know y'all have to work and you have jobs to do, but if you could just keep talking to me, like digging through your memories from the years and years ago, I, that'd be great. Um, but everyone was super generous with their time, but I did have to like, there are deadlines. Books have to be, be made. Apparently you can't just like wave a, a wand and a pile appears. So I did have to like, okay, you have plenty of information. <laughs> just stop and write the book. Uh, but it was just a lot of openness and enthusiasm and i feel like i just gotta hang out with buddies and talk about star wars now that the art of star wars galaxy's edge is out this question is for both of you what are you most excited to share with fans of the land <laughs> everything i know a lot of you know shocking uh, i know a lot of really hardcore star wars fans and specifically people i have a friend who has made multiple outfits for her Galaxy's Edge visits. She's cooked every single recipe in the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge cookbook. Like she, like, and there were many times when I was writing, it's like, oh, if Holly could see this, I'm like, no, I probably signed the thing, but I can't show that to her yet. So I'll just wait. But I'm excited for everyone to see it, but I particularly know folks like her will just, yeah, they're gonna go through every page slowly and, and eat up every detail. and. That's like fun to think about people getting it. Like, cause when I get art books for the films, that's what I do. Like I sit down, I get cozy and like people are gonna do that with this book and learn more about Galaxy's Edge and that's awesome. The only thing I would add is I hope that people get a sense of, because there is so much work and effort that goes into these things and so much of it we have typically not shared and we've just kind of not exposed to the world cause it's just kind of how the sausage is made. I, I hope that uh, seeing all the work that goes into it, all this amazing, you know, imagery and all the thinking that, that goes behind what actually ends up getting built. Uh, I guess my hope would be that people would understand that, you know, the Imagineers, the, 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 the folks that are putting these things together, not just the Imagineers, but everybody at Lucasfilm, all the people who help us build these things, all the construction workers, everything, you know, every little detail of these places is handcrafted. My hope would be 
that our fans and audiences and guests who are going to come to these places understand just how much of this is done on their behalf, right? We're doing all this work on behalf of the guests and the fans uh, because we want them to have an amazing experience. And so I guess my only hope would be that, that, that somehow this becomes an expression of the love we have for those people to say, this is, this is what we'll put into this for, for you. Um, And hopefully that'll, I don't know, maybe, Maybe it's a little love letter to the to our, our guests and fans about what goes into the making of one of these things. I love that. Uh, the very last question I have, which I don't want to ask, but I have to. Uh, I have somehow found myself inserted within the Josh Tomorrow lightsaber narrative. And I just have to ask, is that at all slated for any of the experiences you're involved in? Or is that a standalone product that is being prototyped? As I said earlier you never know what we're going to come up with and what's going to what's going to happen next i i don't know i'm kind of curious as to how you inserted yourself into this narrative did you did you like issue a challenge is there a throwdown that's going to happen okay so here's what happened it uh so he showed the lightsaber at the end of a an online digital media event most people happened to be looking away i don't know why i'm an indoor kid so my eyes were glued to the screen and I'm one of a few people who happened to see it, and I kind of lost my mind on Twitter. And then me swearing about it, going nuts, became like the reference point for it having happened. Got it. So, yeah. Uh, now I just have people messaging me every day being like, if it doesn't slice through people, it's not real. Well, that's not a test that we've actually tried. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to hopefully hopefully it doesn't come down to that. Um I guess what I would say is um, it, you know, I think the question was really like, is this real or is it CG? And I can tell you it's real. Um, it is what you saw is everything you saw is real. There was no, you know, there's no weird camera tricks or anything happening there. And, um, you know, one of the things we like to do in Star Wars is help bring Star Wars to life in the way people expect to see Star Wars. And sometimes that means having lightsabers that do what lightsabers do. So, you know, stay tuned, dot, dot, dot. I know it's not it's not the point of this episode, but I had to ask because people are dying to see or know what that is. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know that's the that, that's again how the sausage is made. It's much less interesting. Although there's an, an immense amount of you know technical ingenuity we put into things, I can tell you we have some exciting things ahead. Scott, Scott now I have to say what things. <laughs> well, some of we some of these we've announced, and some of we haven't. Obviously, our Galactic Star Cruiser is the thing that we are most excited about being next. It's one of the most innovative experiences we've ever conceived. It's one of the most immersive experiences I think we've ever done. Two days and two nights on a Galactic Star Cruiser on the simulated cruise through space. And you know you're in the world, you're in the galaxy of Star Wars, so you know things are going to happen. And I guess to tie it back to the book, I did notice there was some concept art throughout the book, actually, that had experiences that would fit very well within Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Can fans expect the possibility of, say, something that was ideated for the land that didn't make it in appearing within that experience? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, we're always we're always thinking about how, you know, what what are the stories, what are the experiences that are gonna that are gonna resonate with people and things that definitely Ideas that might have been conceived of for this thing over here might find their way into a thing that's over here um, and, and vice versa. Um, that will for sure happen. Very cool. So we can expect to ride that large furry creature from room to room. 
100%. I'm just going to say, if there isn't room in a a galactic outpost, there's probably not room inside a spaceship. Yeah, I would assume so. Can you even believe it? Amy's pets are canon. We got lightsaber details on the record. There's this big gerbil thing in the universe. It's too much, and I highly recommend you pick up a copy of The Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge to carry this journey even further. Amy Radcliffe's work can be found online at Nerdist.com. She is at Amy underscore geek on Twitter and Instagram and has a wonderful newsletter called Roads Go Ever On. Her published work can be found at stores in person and online, but I highly recommend supporting your local bookstore. You can even order The Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge from Malaprop's Bookstore in Asheville, which has signed copies in stock. Scott Trowbridge's work can be found, well, all over the parks. You can find him on Twitter at strowbridge or Instagram at Scott Tro. Stick around! The first Churros hotline calls of the year are up next, and you won't want to miss them. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Carly Weisel. Uh, this is Zane. I just got out of August Cantina, like in the line for Rise of Resistance right now. Um, I did not heed your warning about Blue Foods, and I got a little thing called an Oga's Obsession. And oh my god, I am dying. I'm literally falling apart. I thought your Blue Food argument was ridiculous. I, 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 I thought I enjoyed Blue Foods. I thought I was in love with Blue Foods. This thing was sweet. It was nasty. It was gross. And weird and interesting all at the same time. And I am dying. I feel like I'm a vomit. So, for everyone out there, listen to Carly. She knows what she's talking about. Thank you for all the things you make. We love you. Bye. No, I warned you. I hate to say it, but I told you so. I don't wish a tummy ache on anyone, especially when some of our bodies aren't quite used to eating theme park food. I more than once felt my insides just be rocked by what I was putting in them while at Disneyland. A year without a corn dog really changes your bodily constitution, and I'm so sorry you experienced this. Oga's obsession is probably one of the worst offenders when it comes to my rule of not eating blue food. It's got those weird popping pearls, which unlike actual boba, just feel a bit suspect. I don't trust them. It feels like... 
it feels like not food. You know what I mean? There's also a ghastly alcoholic version of this called the Rhodian ration, Rhodian ration, which weirdly says it contains boba balls instead of popping pearls. So I already feel a little duped no matter what's going on. And I don't know, unless it's a rum cake, I'm not eating my alcohol out of a Petri dish. Thank you very much. Lest I sound too negative, let me assure you, there is something better on the Ogus Cantina menu that I approve of, and it's the Batu Bits. This dish varies from coast to coast, but whether you're chowing down on veggie chips in Florida or seaweed crackers and fried lotus fruit in California, I find it to be the ideal snack to munch on while sitting there. And the best part is, you won't feel your bowels react to it. I'm so sorry again that you were sick, but not going to lie, a little happy to have you on my no blue food team. Thanks so much for calling, and ooh, I hope you feel better. Hello. I have a question about basically the reopening of Disneyland during a pandemic. I am a California resident, and I thought it'd be really fun to go down with my sister to Disneyland. However, I want to be as safe as possible with this pandemic. And part of me is like, oh, this isn't a good idea. In your experience of going to theme parks during pandemics, should California natives wait until the whole thing blows over and we can go back again? Or is it okay if we take precautions? And I guess TLDR, California native wants to go to Disneyland, but still isn't sure. Okay, bye. My answer is yes. If you live in California and are itching to go, now really is the time. If you're willing to wait it out until there are annual passes or perhaps even discounted SoCal resident tickets, if those are ever brought back, I totally understand. It's a lot of money for a ticket that doesn't include fireworks or Fantasmic or some other entertainment you may come to these parks for. But Disneyland Resort is manageable in a way I've never seen before right now. In terms of safety, too, The capacity limitation at Disneyland will never be smaller than it is right now. It's not empty by any means. There are people there, which, if I was not fully vaccinated, might give me pause in certain areas. Especially downtown Disney, which has different guidelines as it's categorically a mall and whatever, but it is busy on the weekends. But anyway... State guidelines barring theme parks from indoor queuing and putting time limits on indoor attractions really does make for a somewhat safer visit. I mean... It's kind of the elephant in the room, but it's weird to see Big Thunder Mountain Railroad put at least two rows and a gap between vehicles between different parties in Anaheim, when in Florida, they're apparently filling every available row. Again, same company, same ride, same pandemic, and two completely different styles of operation. The way I see it, Our COVID caseload is so minimal in this state right now, and with the parks restricted to California residents until the foreseeable future, mask compliance is just unbelievably high. I did see a couple noses poking out here and there, and one cast member fully dash across a walkway to get someone to pull theirs up, which was incredible. But Californians are not new to a mask mandate. We're so used to this by now that, generally speaking, People here just really seem to get it when it comes to wearing masks. They don't really need someone to tell them to pull it up. They're not as great at the social distancing stuff within queues, but, you know, I went on opening day. We're all very new at this, so we'll see how that pans out. I really feel like, especially with the state restrictions put in place, this is kind of a good time to go if you're on the fence. 
I've been brazenly honest when it comes to this stuff since March 2020, and it really felt like the right time for me to return. And that might be different for you, and I totally get that, and you should stick with that no matter what. But if you plan on going, are hesitant to, and kind of have the ability to go now, you might want to just while less people are there. Again, we know capacity will increase for Disneyland Resort. We just don't know when. But again, You have to evaluate your own comfort levels and decide how you feel. Either way, I hope you enjoy going soon or going further in the future because man, oh man, is it good to be back. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. show that's our first show back thank you all so much for listening and thank you again to amy radcliffe and scott trowbridge for coming on to chat about the art of star wars galaxy's edge season two is back which means we are accepting your churros hotline calls give us a ring at 747 churros with your theme park mysteries or musings truly whatever and it may be featured on a future episode you can also now send us a voice note if that's your jam at 747 churros at gmail.com it's the number but it spelled out as the email address they didn't have very amusing at gmail.com so i did my best while you're at it please subscribe at apple podcasts that way like a beautiful sunrise you'll just wake up to my voice wishing you a wonderful morning each and every wednesday and be sure to rate and review us while you're there it's basically a report card and i really don't want to fail this elective so i appreciate you plopping out a few kind words or just clicking some stars to say you approve of this silly little corner of the internet if you want even more of these stories secrets and shenanigans you can find me on patreon carlywisel.com slash patreon is your castle drawbridge to a fantasy land full of bonus content including podcast minisodes weekly newsletter q a's and even a monthly digital zine i am also on twitter and instagram all day long at Carly Wiesel and would love to hear from you. Your thoughts, your dreams of Mickey pretzels being sold everywhere with true nacho cheese, and even your food rules when you're in the parks, if you happen to have any. A very special thank you to everyone at Acast and ICM for helping get this season off the ground. Very Amusing is edited spectacularly by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, sweetie, it's Mom. I am so excited to be calling the Very Amusing Hotline once again. Yay, I've missed you so much on the weekly podcast. 
You know, I could just cry. This is so exciting for me because I wait every week to hear what you have to say and who you're interviewing and what's going on. So I have really missed this just as much as anybody else has. So I'm really excited. I have another idea, too. I haven't seen you in like nine months. So I'm thinking of planning a trip and coming to see you, but I want to know if maybe we can do a segment for Very Amusing again, because that was so much fun. That was the highlight of last year. So if that's possible, that would be great. Anyways, I wanted to say I'm so happy that you're back. I am very excited to be back and to leave a message for you, and I love you, and I can't wait to see you, and good luck with Very Amusing. We're back on. I mean, you're back on. Bye, honey. Love you.